Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, a podcast series brought to you by the Archaeology Centers Coalition and Radio Science at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This series has been developed in partnership with Season 4 of the Sapiens Podcast in order to discuss new approaches to changing archaeology stories and who tells them. Our goal is to dig deeper into the pressing issues that the Sapiens series raises for the practice of archaeology. My name is Ruth Portes, and I'm a PhD student in classics at Cornell University. And I'm Claire Chalancen. I'm also a PhD student in classics at Cornell. In this episode, we continue the discussion that began in episode 7 of season 4 of the Sapiens podcast, a conversation that examines repatriation and what it means for archaeology. We have two special guests with us today. Rachel Watkins is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at American University and a specialist in African-American biohistory. Welcome to Sapiens Talkback, Professor Watkins. Thank you. Happy to be here. Joining us as well is Dr. Dorothy Ripper, an expert in repatriation and a tribal liaison for the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Welcome, Dr. Ripper. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you all. We're very pleased to be joined today by a panel of archaeologists from universities across the U.S. that will help guide our conversation. They will introduce themselves in the course of our discussions. In addition to probing the issues raised in episode 7 of the Sapiens series, we will also be discussing insights provided by two recent publications. The first is a 2020 article by Professor Watkins in the journal Historical Archaeology entitled An Alternative Perspective on Historical Bioarchaeology. The second is a chapter from the book Collaboration in Archaeological Practice by Dr. Lipper entitled Not the End, Not the Middle, but the Beginning. Repatriation is a transformative mechanism for archaeologists and indigenous peoples. Let me start the conversation with a question for Dr. Lipper. In the chapter, you argue that when it comes to repatriation, Native Americans must become human remains before they return to being people. And a similar process of categorization classification happens to sacred material and objects. And you ultimately conclude by arguing that the laws reveal that the process of repatriation is a colonized one. I wonder if there's a way to change the process, um, go beyond and leave behind categories, Western categories, and ultimately if you think that it's possible to decolonize repatriation. Is there anything archaeologists can do? Thank you, Claire. Yes, I've, I've been thinking about repatriation and how it is structured by these colonial practices that set up archeology span in essence. And if I think about what a decolonized repatriation practice would be, I'm kind of imagining if we flip the whole thing on its head. So think about if institutions had to prove that they had the right to hold human remains and Native um, sacred objects, Native important um, objects. And it's just turning it around, uh, taking it, you know, taking the exact you know, different practice uh, than what, what we've established right now. Um, I don't really think that kind of thing is going to happen, but I'm, I'm including it as an example, just, you know, the kind of a, um, a thought um, uh, exercise, you know, what, what would that look like? So the, the categories that we use in repatriation when we think about what is a sacred object, um, you know, what are the lines of evidence for finding cultural affiliation, those are informed by 
Western scientific uh, practices, you know, to date. So what I, the way I forward that I see is to indigenize Western science. And the more we bring indigenous perspectives and indigenous people into the sciences, the greater opportunities we have to change the way we do business uh, in archaeology. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Amanda Altov. Um, I'm a PhD student at Columbia University, and I'm really interested in this question of classifications and categories that Claire has brought up. I think it would be really interesting and important to bring in this idea of personhood beyond the human. Um, my own work in Alaska is concerned with animal-human studies, and there used to be practices of returning animal bones to the ocean, for example, or burying them to pay respects to the animal communities and renew social relations. So this is a question for both of you. How can we rethink repatriation in terms of such social relations between animals, humans, and things? Thanks so much for this, this question. Um, it, it has me, I had to pause for a minute and think. So I think that one of the important realizations that's coming out of recent discussions around repatriation, recent discussions around kind of rethinking scientific authority, um, the authority of you know, who's in charge of determining how knowledge is, is constructed and what's considered to be robust knowledge. Um, I think that so many of these discussions at their core are destabilizing our established ideas around the ways in which we think about human beings being a different type of animal from non-human beings um, and so on. And so I think that kind of continuing in that vein and continuing to think about what that means for humanity, right, to, to uh, destabilize those traditional and kind of taken for granted um, separations between human and non-human animals seem are really promising to me. It's a great question. It's really uh, fascinating to think about the relationships uh, that we have with the non-human world. And I'm reminded of situations in India and in Aotearoa where rivers have been granted personhood and it demonstrates that we are in relationship with all aspects of our, our world. When it comes to animals in particular, I've seen in repatriation that uh, we've re returned the remains of animals as sacred objects. Uh, they could be part of um, uh, items that are classified as objects of cultural patrimony. And again, you know, we're using that word objects, which sound, can sound offensive when you're talking about these you know, important sacred items. Um, but it's that interaction with human beings that that creates that sacredness. You know, the, the humans and the animals are in relationship with one another. And then um, because of religious practices, the animals become part of religious activity. Uh, I think it what we need to do is to be working you know, so closely with tribal experts. Uh, to understand more about um, this situation. 
Hello, uh, my name is uh, Mina Nikolovieni. I am a PhD candidate at the Zukowski Institute for Archaeology in the ancient world at Brown University. Um, Dr. Watkins, uh, whether we refer to archaeologists or anthropologists in museums or bioarchaeologists in the lab, what seems to prevail is this sense of ownership over material culture or skeletal remains. What do you think should change in the undergraduate and graduate training of the scientists to el eliminate this and maybe make it possible for them to come closer to working with uh, communities? Thanks so much for that question. I will answer it in the form of providing you with an example of one of the um, requirements I have of my students who are in my human osteology class. Um, it's pretty standard procedure to have students sign some sort of laboratory contract agreement where you know they sign off on agreeing to make sure that the laboratory is clean and not you know, have any food or drink in it or, you know, all of those things that make perfect sense um, in terms of adhering to proper lab procedure. I have revised my laboratory contractual agreement to include clauses where the students sign off on statements such as I recognize the privilege of being able to uh, engage in this study on the remains of people who did not uh, cede their remains for this purpose. And, and so therefore I understand that I'm not only privileged in terms of being a student and having access to education, but I'm also privileged because I know my remains are not going to end up in a laboratory or in some sort of unexpected circumstance. Um, I also have statements uh, that speak to the importance of understanding the social context of the uh, remains of the human beings that we're studying as are using for utilizing for study and training um, versus just kind of viewing them as, as specimens. And of course, it goes without saying that it isn't just about the statements, but we um, engage in readings and discussion that focus on the meanings around those statements and why they're important uh, in terms of the commitment that you make to osteological study. So I'm not a professor, and I've, um, but thinking about training and thinking about how to um, educate about building relationships with communities is something that I've, I've done a lot of, of um, I've, I've done a lot of thinking on this, this topic. And one thing that I've found is that a lot of times people have a fear about reaching out to communities. It's almost as if they think, well, if I start talking to somebody, maybe I'll learn something I don't want to know. But that's exactly what you want to know. <laughs> you want to know what, um, what, the, what concerns community members have. And it's, it's, you know, it's so important for students to understand uh, these connections to the, the between the past and present. And so you know, just think about if you're anywhere um, in the United States right now, you're on indigenous land. We are you know, on indigenous land and the universities in the United States that you're studying on, those are on indigenous land. Um, and it's important to just to be able to see that and see where you're situated in all of that. And just having that in that understanding 
um, can be the first step to thinking about, well, what is my work? You know, what am I going to be doing and researching? And who is that going to affect? Because it's likely going to affect um, at least one community, if not more. Thank you. My name is Dr. Wendy Giddens Teeter. I'm the repatriation coordinator and senior curator for the Fowler Museum at UCLA and also the cultural resources archaeologist for San Inez Band of Shemash Indians. And, and Dr. Lippert, you, you write of the difficulty in being a repatriation case manager, trying to meet with tribes to bring their ancestors and belongings home and working together to convince a group of unseen people that, that represent the board that render decisions about repatriation claims without um, them having to meet with the tribes to seek resolution. How do you cope as a strong native female scholar in this middle place, delivering sometimes the worst news while knowing the connections um, were there just not to the potentially unattainable standard desired by the institution? Thank you for that question, uh, Wendy. It's um, it's a really hard situation to be in, kind of in this, this middle place. And there are kind of two things that help. And the first is, I remember what a fellow Native American archaeologist once told me. And um, so Desiree Martinez is Tongva, and uh, she's a good friend. And one time I was talking to her about something that was making me very upset. And she said, um, just remember that the ancestors know what you're doing. The ancestors know your heart. And that's been so helpful in keeping a perspective on the work that I do, because I remember that um, I've got my ancestors you know, standing with me when I go into this process. Um, and then I've spent a couple of years lately being very depressed about my work, but really seriously depressed and, and stressed out. And I finally came out of it with a mantra that I've, I've written down in various places. And it's, I do not take the fall for settler colonialism. And I realized that that's what I had been trying to do, that I thought that somehow it was my responsibility to, to make, to change everything that had happened that got us to this point. And come to realize, oh, that's not on me. I am working to do the best job that I can. And um, I, I will continue to do that with, with my ancestors alongside me. Um, and I can continue to do the work of growing the next generation of um, indigenous uh, scientists and I can do the work that I that I can do. Um, so it's it's just been kind of coming to a realization of where my position is uh, and all of in all of this, but also relying on my my friends and colleagues who understand uh, this this as well. Yes, I would like to add uh, a little something there to Dr. Lippert's important comments. You know, people need to understand that there's a lot of labor around the work that we do, um, not just intellectual labor, but also emotional labor. And, you know, some of that labor actually involves participating in discussions like this, which, you know, we all appreciate and find very fruitful. At the same time, um, 
there are many of us who've been working on these issues, who've been kind of exploring these questions, wanting to pose these questions um, and these challenges to our broader intellectual communities. And we haven't been able to do that because there hasn't been, um, there hasn't been a critical mass of people willing to listen and, and take up these questions and challenges um, in the way that's happening now. And so I, I think that as we kind of continue to develop and broaden these, these spaces as we should, we have to keep in mind what Dorothy just said, that we're not here as, as BIPOC, as they say folks, to take the fall or to compensate for things that have not happened over long periods of time. Um, we're here as, as leaders, and we are also here as folks who are you know, trying to connect um, across and within our communities to uh, answer these questions um, and, and take up these issues in ways that are specific to our needs as, as folks who um, are Black and Indigenous and, and other, other folks of color. So I wanted to make sure to, to raise that point. Thank you both. Hi, this is Ruth again. An issue you both highlight is the impersonal and objective attitude in Western science, particularly as it is practiced by non-Black and Indigenous researchers and other researchers of color. And archeological and museum databases are an entrenched application of this objectivity, quote unquote, and a perpetuation of colonial structures due to the standardization of metadata and keywords and categorizations. Dr. Watkins, you mentioned this in your 2020 article with regards to the Cobb Collection, and you were both discussing this a bit now, but could I ask you both what uh, a decolonized database could look like and should look like? Yes, so one of the, the things that a lot of my recent work kind of takes up the issue that there's a, a kind of fundamental way that we approach our research. There's a fundamental way that we approach scientific practices that's embedded in this, you know, very um, Western, you know, colonial racist tradition. And that there are all of these places where these uh, underpinnings that reinforce these ideas around, you know, who, who is human and, and who isn't that guide the work. And so for me, before we can get to a decolonized database, there's a, a process that we have to go through in terms of decolonizing our thinking around what data are. And that has implications for everything from how the data are generated to the process by which they're recorded to how they end up in a database. So for instance, one of the, um, one of the issues that I think is really important and that we're just starting to kind of address is the fact that a lot of African descendant people have no idea that there are museums and other institutions full of the remains of our ancestors. And so I would say, for instance, before even getting to that database, there needs to be a process by which communities are made aware of the fact that 
these people exist in these particular spaces. Right? And then perhaps we go from there with communities determining what a database will look like because perhaps a database for us that might be useful for us in our research is not gonna be useful for communities who are gonna to wanna to engage the data in a broad range of ways and hold us appropriately accountable for doing the same. So that's kind of where I, I yeah, that's part of what I would say needs to go into a decolonized database. I totally agree, Rachel. There's so much to think about when it comes to the information that goes in a database, but also we think about the ways in which the database is used and who has access and who sees the information because there's information that may apply to a repatriation case that doesn't necessarily need to be known by anyone who can access that that database, you know, there's there are things that are um, sacred that need to be kept um, kept apart. Uh, you know, the information is not meant to be shared broadly. But the nature of a database is to draw in information and uh, make it accessible. And so, uh, a step on decolonizing, I guess, is to um, consider where the the you know where the a step in that process is to consider what you're going to make visible and what you're going to hold back from view. Um, this is Claire again. Um, I have a question for Professor Watkins. Um, in your article, you talk about the importance of positionality and the role of researchers as social actors, and, and you include a subject position statement. Um, I wonder if you could say more about that um, how and what are the ways in which researchers can and should consider and, and make their positionality part of their research? And what are productive ways through which positionality can be integrated into one's research? I'm going to begin my answer to that question referencing something that Dr. Lippert mentioned earlier when she was talking about um, a more indigenized approach to uh, repatriation or decolonized approach to repatriation. And one of the things that she highlighted was flipping the process on its head such that institutions say would have to justify their right, you know, if at all, to be able to hold you know, certain um, sacred objects and, and ancestral remains. Similarly, I see positionality and, and a statement of one's positionality as part of that process of having to the flipping the process on its head and placing the researcher in the position of having to justify their credibility to move forward with conducting research. And my position on that is that you cannot be credible without being very clear about who you are and what you're bringing to the table uh, as a researcher. So as uh, in other words, distancing yourself as much as possible from uh, a position of objectivity and fully inhabiting who you are and being honest about that uh, as a researcher. Thank you. Uh, this is Mina again. 
while a lot of museums have expressed uh, decolonizing perspectives in their uh, mandates, uh, it seems that the bureaucratic burden of the repatriation process mainly falls on the shoulders of the communities. How do you think this can change in both intellectual and practical terms, but mostly on practical terms? Well, it's funny, isn't it, with the bureaucracy, how it kind of crept in when, uh, I guess the, the root of repatriation is happened when a person died and they were buried by their family or their loved ones and uh, in a cemetery with relatives and members of their community. And, you know, that was just done as part of, you know, the people's lives. People you know, died and their loved ones took care of them. And then remains were excavated by archaeologists. Again, there's a little bureaucracy with that, you know, um, getting, uh, you know, going out into the field, getting um, funding to do that kind of work and everything, bringing the, the remains into the museum. And then this, the bureaucracy exploded with the repatriation process. So we have all of these, you know, that there had to be federal laws and there had to be specifications and identifications. And I remember when repatriation was getting underway, people were having arguments about it. And they, I saw things that archaeologists were writing and it was, they, they had a different expectation for what repatriation was. And it was almost as if they thought it was going to be easy for, for tribes to do, to accomplish. And the truth is, is that it's, it's severely challenging um, on you know, a, an emotional level, um, a spiritual level, and then you get to the bureaucratic level and tribes need to have the capacity to deal with repatriation on all of those levels. So tribes need, um, need to have the ability to have a repatriation office, to have that established and funded, to have people who can do the work, um, who are, um, you know, have, have sufficient you know, capabilities to take on the work. And then they need to be able to care for those staff members to address all of those other, you know, the, the challenges to their um, spiritual and, and mental health in doing repatriation. So I don't know that I've got an answer for how, how we can lessen the, the bureaucratic burden. Uh, certainly, um, you know, adequate funding is always, uh, always helpful. Um, uh, but um, I'm, I'm not sure about, about the other parts of it. This is Amanda again. And I think my next question is quite fitting in what Dr. Lippert was just saying. Um, Dr. Watkins, in episode seven of the Sapiens podcast, um, you speak about this question of interdisciplinary allyship. And um, I want to quote, it's about community and it's not all about what you can find out yourself. You've got to have people around you to bring these things to your attention. And it doesn't have to be somebody who studies what you study. Could you elaborate on this importance of community and of interdisciplinarity and allyship in regards to repatriation. Yeah, thank you for that. So um, again, I'll refer to something that I 
I said in a <laughs> said previously, um, part in in part in that that interview, and also something I mentioned yesterday during um, a bioan conference session, and and that is that there is a sense of moral panic, if you will, around the idea of repatriation for some people. Um, and uh, indigenous scholars like Zuleika Zavayos and others have written about uh, moral panics and how they factor into the ways that uh, race and settler colonialism and, and other um, broader forms of inequality are practiced. And at the heart of moral panic is this kind of sense that it is not necessary to consider uh, a perspective other than your own in terms of how something should happen. So that's why people feel justified to say, oh, well, you know, uh, repatriation is gonna mean the, mean the end of my scientific research or the end of my students' research. And so you know, yesterday in a session, I said, I, I talked about, or I, I said something about the importance of this interdisciplinary allyship and kind of looking to cultural studies literatures and historical literatures to inform how we think about humanity outside of a scientific, a Western scientific context. And I said that if nothing else, you know, even if you can't go as far as to say, all right, we need to stop or halt all research until we you know, pin down certain things, at the least a pause of some sort is justified. And that pause can look you know, a number of different ways, but at the least a pause is warranted. And you know, unexpect, I mean, expectedly, but unfortunately, a question came from the audience uh, saying, well, you know, okay, you, you, you say, you know, this pause, you know, that there needs to be a pause. And then at the same time, you know, what does this mean for the student who wants to, or the young career scholar who wants to, and again, in keeping with a moral panic, one of the most extreme scenarios, one of the most extreme outcomes was posed, followed by, so while I appreciate a pause, we have to think about the practicalities. And so again, what that says in the context of a moral panic is that being just is impractical. We don't have a sense of justice being a part of, you know, being intellectually robust. And so, um, you know, that's something that I think really needs to be at the core of, of why we are and how we commit to interdisciplinary allyship and kind of getting outside of our own sense of expectations around how things should happen, how research should take place. Thinking in terms of allyship, I, I found that there's so much um, overlap between the experiences of the native people whose remains have been taken to museums and institutions and the African-American people whose remains have been taken to museums and institutions. And I think there's, um, I think it's going to be wonderful moving ahead to work together and 
for Native people to share experiences of repatriation, the things that we've learned that work, things that we've learned that don't work, um, and pass that on to um, our um, fellow uh, community members or BIPOC community members who are going to be walking this same road, so to speak. So following up on that, uh, this is Wendy again, following up on what was just discussed um, and for Dr. Watkins, um, we've learned a lot from NAGPRA and, and its focus on treaty rights. How do you see sort of cap, um, capitalizing on the um, information and things that we've learned towards returning African and African-American remains to their loved ones um, when we don't necessarily know who the lineal descendant is? Thank you for that. I think that, um, again, to echo something that Dr. Lippert just said, you know, the, um, the interaction and the ongoing discussion between African descendant communities and Native American communities and the ways in which those communities are not um, both distinct and indistinct is going to be really important because um, while there is a lot of enthusiasm around legislation like AGPRA, many folks who are thought leaders in that are very open about the ways that we still have to go, that many of us have to go in terms of understanding the um, pros and cons of NAGPRA, you know, kind of understanding from Native communities, lessons learned, and, you know, what, what has worked and what hasn't worked. And I think that, you know, hearing from um, Native American communities, not just hearing what has worked and what hasn't worked, but actually kind of taking direction in terms of shaping something like an AGPRA, if that's the direction in which we want to go, is going to be key. Now, in terms of lineal descent and the fact that it's, it's really not going to be, um, you know, the possibilities around identifying folks who have lineal descent ties to uh, ancestors who are in these these laboratories and the museums. Um, I think that we still, we nonetheless have resources to draw on, one of which is the New York African Burial Ground Project, which happened 30 years ago, where the scholarship really and the success, broad success of the project had everything to do with descendant community engagement and the actions taken on the part of the descendant community. And those folks were not people who had lineal descent ties and they knew that they did and they knew that it wouldn't be possible to find out whether that was the case. And what came out of that was that that was not important, that there was a shared sense of experience in terms of being person of African descent, understanding that the legacies of enslavement impact black people's lived experiences today and being a descendant in that way. Also there being um, spiritual and other ties that people have that justified their involvement in determining the final disposition of those ancestors. And I, the reason why I, I think that kind of digging into this idea of descendant community when it comes to African descendant ancestors, they have that very broad conceptualization is so important is because that is just that that really cannot play a central role 
in determining um, final disposition in the way that it would say with NAGPRA. And if we get caught up in that, you know, I think if too much attention in the case of African descendant remains is given to lineal descent, it's, it's gonna be one of those pieces that throws things off track. Thank you. I think uh, what Dr. Watkins has said is, is so important. And if you look at repatriation of native remains, you know, there is the category of um, the CUI category, uh, culturally um, unidentifiable uh, individuals. Um, and that just means you know, people that we don't exactly know who their relatives are, but in a broader sense we do because we know that they are Native American individuals. And so we know that they have you know, they, they likely have relatives in, uh, you know, somewhere in some tribe. Uh, it's, um, uh, and, and we know, the other thing that we know, 100% know, is that they were buried, they were treated by their loved ones as members of a community. They, they had a community, their loved ones chose to bury them with respect in a, a culturally appropriate way. So we know that about their last wishes, if you want to call it that. So when Dr. Watkins was speaking about the work at the African burial ground, um, it, it, it was, you know, there were so many things that were known about those people. You know, we knew that they had a community. We knew that they wanted to be buried uh, by members of their community. We know that they were loved just by the way that we can we can see how they were buried. And so then we take what we do know and we see you know, what are the connections with people today? Well, there is a community of African-American people uh, who, who want to see ancestors treated with respect and who want to do the right thing to, to care for them. And so I don't think it's necessary to lean so hard on this idea of lineal descent, because again, that's a, you know, that's a, that can be a, you know, something that's constructed according to, to Western science. Who is related? You know, what does, you know, this line of evidence say um, when, you know, how about we, we think about what, what we really do know? This is Ruth again. My question is also a bit of a follow-up. I wanted to ask you both about uh, speaking of, of caring for these individuals, those who are unclaimed. Um, like those you, Dr. Liffert, mentioned in your 2021 article who could not be returned out of concern for the spiritual health of the tribal members or those who remain in the Cobb collection, not by choice and for now at least. I know this is a difficult question um, and Dr. Watkins, you even mentioned you don't have an answer to whether any uh, body should be available for study in, in Sapiens episode seven. But could you speak about how these individuals are cared for and how you ideally envision their care and their roles in the future? Well, what I can do is speak to my sense of what <laughs> um, how we should move forward with the treatment of, of, of people whose remains are unclaimed. So this, I'm trying to be as, as careful as possible knowing you can edit out. Um, okay, so you want me to answer a question about what should be, what should happen with these, with the, the people whose remains are unclaimed? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, I think that ultimately the decisions that are made around the remains of ancestors who are not able to be claimed by say family members, um, say in the case of, of people whose remains are in the cop collection, given the, the time frame for these folks, it's highly likely that they do indeed have relatives in the area who could perhaps claim them. At the same time, just like so many other anatomical collections like the Cobb collection, the people whose remains are in that collection represent the great migration, represent all sorts of circulations that African descendant folks have made around this country. Um, again, specific to the time period. And so even, so, you know, the, the sense of somebody being unclaimed, again, really should not um, necessarily factor into whether, say, this person's, these, the, the remains of someone should be reburied or um, be a part of some burial that a community engages in in honor of people who are in the collection because it may very well be the case that one of the individuals who was only in D.C. for three days doesn't have any, um, you know, we, we won't be able to identify relatives for that person. So I think, again, a, a very broad understanding of of that person's descendants is gonna be very important in terms of determining the final um, disposition. And outside of that, yeah, I, I think I have to repeat, I don't really have an answer. It's, it's one of those things that will have to take, take shape and unfold um, in partner with, with scientists, with researchers and descendant communities being in partnership. So like, Dr. Watkins, I don't have a really great answer or I don't have a real specific answer. I'm thinking about human remains of people who's um, for the, I'm thinking about the remains of people from tribes who choose not to bring them back because they find that it might cause more trauma, um, might cause more harm to the community if they um, bring them back or they don't have a way to bring them back home and have it be safe for everyone. It's another way to, to think about it. And for those individuals, we can talk to the community and say, what, what are your wishes with regard to these remains? What do you, what is the best way for us to, to care for them? For other individuals, I mean, I, I think it just comes down to kind of a basic thing. And we, do, we just need to look at the remains and think of them as the, the, the physical remains of human beings. And I say that and I think, you know, well, that sounds pretty obvious that that's what we're, we're talking about. But I, it, it hasn't always shown up in the way that, that uh, institutions and museums have, have related to these human remains. You know, we, we related to them as collections. And uh, so the, the way to treat the individuals whose remains are still at museums or institutions is just that to, to remember that these are these are people, these are these are the remains of people, and then treat them accordingly. Thank you.
There's so much more for us to discuss, but unfortunately, that will have to be the last word for this episode of Sapiens Talk Back. Dr. Lippert and Dr. Watkins, thank you so much for this thoughtful and thought-provoking discussion. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Sapiens Talk Back was developed in collaboration with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and the Society of Back Archaeologists, with special help from Dr. Sarah Gonzalez, Dr. Justin Dunavan, and Dr. Ayana Fluwalden. Special thanks to Dr. Chip Colwell and the production team at Sapiens, the Venner Grant Foundation for Anthropological Research and House of Pod. This episode was made possible by financial support from the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology at UCLA with additional support from the University of Arizona's School of Anthropology. We want to thank our panelists for leading our conversation today. Dr. Wendy Teeter, Mina Nikolovieni, and Amanda Altoff. Thanks also to the member organizations of the Archaeology Center's Coalition for supporting Sapiens Talk Back. You can find more information about their work at archaeologycoalition.org. Radio Science is a member of the American Anthropological Association's podcast library. This episode was produced at Cornell University by Adam Smith with Rafael Cruz Gil as our engineer and Rebecca Gerdes as our production advisor. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gallo Cojono. The Gallo Cojono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of the Gallo Cojono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gallo Cojono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. And we encourage you to investigate the indigenous histories and living communities connected to the places that you occupy. Be sure to tune in next week for the final episode of Sapiens Talk Back. Looking forward, looking back. Our guests for this last episode will be Sarah Gonzalez, Ayana Fluwellen, and Lewis Bork, who will join us for a discussion of how new institutions like the Indigenous Archaeology Collective, the Society of Black Archaeologists, and the Black Trowel Collective are driving change in the discipline. I'm Ruth Porta. And I'm Claire Shalonsen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.